This morning we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. And this is really a pretty big chapter. It's got two of the, the, uh, the most famous, most popular uh, passages, stories about Jesus, stories that, uh, that we teach in Sunday school. Really, that's, those are the ones that everyone knows and feel like they know front to back because you hear them from the time you're a young child all the way through. Um, and, and, and even even if you're not a church person, even if you're not somebody who's been to church a lot and somebody who hasn't read the Bible a lot, you're probably familiar with these stories. Last week, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. And that's a pretty pretty commonly told story. It's an it's a exciting one because you get the five loaves and the two fish and then you break them up and, and they multiply and feed over 5,000 people. Um, and today we're going to see Jesus walking on the water and Peter getting out of the boat to walk on the water with him. Um, and both of these are just, I mean, again, they're told from the time you're a small child. You've heard these stories in Sunday school. You even see these depicted outside of, uh, of church context, outside of Christian context. Out in the, in the secular world, you'll see these uh, depicted often even in a mocking manner maybe sometimes. But, uh, but they're, they're well-known passages, right? Um, and the danger with these passages is that we can get complacent about them, right? We can go, okay, I've heard this one before, right? And almost certainly you've heard sermons on this one before. And I don't know for sure that I'm going to say anything that you've never heard before. But here's what we should do when we encounter these passages. Because this happens all the time, right? If we're working our way through the Bible, we undoubtedly will come across something that we feel like we've heard a hundred times. And so what could we possibly get out of it? on the 101st time through. But here's the, here's the reality, that the, the, the Word of God is living and active, right? It's an active book. It's a book that, re, that when you read the Bible, it reads you back, is one of the ways that we like to say that. And, and we have, of course, have the Holy Spirit within us. If we believe in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and it illuminates the Scriptures for us. So every time that we encounter a passage, we won't necessarily even find something new. We won't necessarily see something that we never saw before, but it might speak into our lives in a new way. And that's an important distinction. It's not that we're finding things that were never there before, or even oftentimes in Bible study situations, you'll hear the phrase like, what does this passage mean to you? That, that phrase always makes me a little bit uh, uncomfortable because it implies that what it means to you is different than what it means to me and that it means what it means to each individual person and not what God intended it to mean. Um, and so I think it's important that we avoid that language, that it's not about what it means to us, but it, it does apply to our lives differently in each season of life. Um, as we move through, we can find new, new things that, that speak to our lives in new ways we can notice things that we didn't notice the first time. Um, that's not saying that we found something that wasn't there before. That's something that we've noticed that we never saw before. And that's the kind of thing that, that certainly happens as we read the Bible. We, we highlight things in our own minds, in our own hearts, that things that jump out at us. And then maybe the second, third, fourth, a hundredth time we've, we've read it, we notice something that we didn't notice before. It's always been there. It's truth that has always been there, but we never noticed it before. So that's what I want you to look for today is what are the things as we go through this story again that really jump out at us? And one of the things too is to make sure we're reading it for what the Bible says, not what our culture has made these stories to be. So oftentimes we, 
we will use like the the cartoon version that we saw like we were, we might think of the VeggieTales version or we might think of uh, you know some other animated version or even the felt uh, felt board version that your Sunday school teacher taught you um, and sometimes we can get off of scripture even slightly in that I'm not saying in a way that's heretical or something like that although sometimes that can happen but sometimes it's just not exactly depicted the way that the Bible says it and so oftentimes we're even editing our sketch in our minds of what this story is to make it in line with what the Bible says. And I think that's an important ex exercise that we can do too as we encounter these familiar stories. So we'll start off first here with verses 22 through 27, calling this section Ghost, which we'll see as we get in here. All right. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So the first thing that I want us to notice is that this passage starts with saying that Jesus, he, he, uh, he sends the disciples off in the boat, right? He gets them loaded in the boat. And, and you can imagine they're about to paddle off and they go, Jesus, are you coming? And he goes, no, 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 you guys go. I need to dismiss these crowds and then I've got some things I need to take care of. So he sends the disciples off. He goes, go to the other side. Or he maybe points them in the direction he wants them to go. Uh, and he sends them off. Um, and, then, and then he dismisses the crowds by himself. He goes and he says, listen, it's been a long day. You guys need to go home. You know, maybe prays for a few people, and he sends them off. He dismisses the crowds by himself. And then once they're gone, he returns to his original purpose. If we remember from the beginning of this chapter, the beginning of chapter 14, what happens is that Jesus finds out about the death of John the Baptist. It's devastating news to him, right? It's, it's grief-filled uh, grief news for him because this was his friend, this was his cousin, this was his forerunner, the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. He's been beheaded by Herod. And so Jesus had gone off by himself. He tried to get to a desolate place to be alone with God, to grieve, to pray, and the crowds chased him down. So then he spent all day ministering to them to the point where it was getting late. <clears throat> they were in this desolate place and he had to feed them. They, they needed to eat. And so he did this miracle with the five loaves and the two fish and fed these 5,000 plus, 5,000 families. And, and so now it's late, right? It's after dinner and he's continued to do stuff and he has to dismiss them. They've gathered the leftovers. He sent the disciples off and, and now he's dismissed the crowds. And now he's getting back to his original purpose. He's going to go off up on the mountain by himself to pray. He needs to spend some time with God. And Jesus, what we see in this is that Jesus doesn't allow anything to eliminate his prayer time. Right? He might delay it for something that, that he thinks is important, but he's not going to eliminate it altogether. So even though he's had this really uh, big day, right, and, and an emotional day and maybe overwhelming and exhausting day, right, it's exhausting to, to find out this emotional 
news and have this reaction of wanting to get away and then to be confronted by these crowds and he's overcome with compassion for them. So he spends the day with them and then he does this miracle and now he's dismissed them. He's got to be tired, right? He had a human body. He, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. And so he is fully tired at this point. And yet he still will not allow this to eliminate this time he knows he needs with the Father. And so he goes off by himself to pray, probably to grieve, to talk about what happened with John. And so this causes us to question, how do we prioritize our prayer time? You know, what do you do to prioritize your prayer time, to make sure that it's there, whether it's there when you want it to be or not, right? Sometimes we might have good intentions. We might have a plan of, you know what, I'm going to get up early and, and pray. I'm going to get up, you know, my family, I know they get up around uh, seven. And so, you know, I'm going to get up at six. So I have some time alone with God so I can pray, so I can process these things. And, and almost assuredly, the first day that you do that, somebody else is going to wake up at six, right? One of your kids is going to wake up at six and come out and want things from you. Almost surely that's going to happen. Why is that the case? Because there will be obstacles to our prayer time. There will be obstacles to the time we try to get with God. They will be both passive and active, right? There are passive things that ordinary life just gets in the way, right? You, you Again, you have that, that kid that wakes up. You have um, a phone call that comes in at the very time that you would set aside. You have um, an emergency at work that at the very time that you had wanted to set aside and pray with God and maybe read your Bible, something comes up. That just ordinary life gets in the way. We also have active obstacles in that Satan does not want us to pray. Satan and his demons will try to stop you from having that time that you need to get alone with God and pray. So there's a couple things we can do to combat this. One is to recognize how important it is and be like Jesus. He, he persisted in his attempts to pray. He, he wasn't going to allow it to be eliminated. Now he delayed it and he seems to be okay with that. He thought it was important that he spend that day with the crowds, having compassion on them, caring for them, healing them, teaching them, praying with them. But he still gets away and it gets this time alone with God. The other thing that's important for us to recognize is that we can pray at all times. We can pray anytime, anywhere. We don't have to have this moment where we get off by ourselves alone in a quiet place in order to pray. That can certainly be helpful, right? It certainly can be helpful to have some time alone with God where we're free from distraction, free from worry, free from being hurried, that's an important thing, but we can also pray at all times. The Apostle Paul encourages us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul shows that we can pray at all times. So you can pray while you're driving. Now, don't close your eyes, but you can pray while you're driving. You can pray while you're making dinner. You can pray Anytime. You can pray even when you're talking to somebody. You can also be talking to God. Right? Those things are important for us to maintain that connection. While it's important that we have that time away, it's also something that we can do all the time. I kind of relate it to marriage in that way, that, that you, you have time with your spouse, and it's important that you have time with your spouse that is alone, that is quiet. It's important to have things like date night. It's important to have those conversations after the kids have gone to bed, 
um, where you can really get into what's going on and talk about it. But, but if that was the only communication you did with your spouse, your relationship wouldn't be very uh, fruitful, right? If you never talked to each other in the middle of the day, if you never talked to each other while life was happening, it wouldn't be a very, it wouldn't be a very full relationship. You wouldn't feel like you're in it together. So I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm texting my wife all day and talk, we're talking about stuff, either text message or sometimes we'll call each other in the middle of the day. Um, if we're apart, if we're at the house and we're doing stuff, then, then we're talking in little snippets throughout the day. I think it's similar with God. Can we, can we have a similar life with God where we have those important times where we get away, but also be in constant contact with him? So that's what Jesus goes to do. He goes to pray. The disciples, they're in the boat and they row out, um, but the wind is against them, right? It tells us that, um, that when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was a long way from land. It was being beaten by the waves because the wind was against them. The disciples, if we think about where the disciples are at in this moment, right? They'd made some good progress at the boat. They're a long way out, but the wind kicked up in the night and it was against them. And we, we know from, from the geography of the Sea of Galilee that this can happen. They can have these sudden wind storms that, that come right down because of the way the valleys are. The wind can just rush in and just hit that lake, uh, hit that sea super hard, and it will just create this this turbulent situation. And that's what's happened here. The wind is kicked up. It's blowing in the wrong direction. Things are not going well for them. They think about the day that they had, right? Think about the day that they had with Jesus and how long they've been going. They'd, they'd seen Jesus get this terrible news. Maybe even one of them delivered it. They get this terrible news about John and he wants to go off and they see the crowds rushing and and there's some debate about whether they were with him in the boat or whether they were with the crowds and they ran down too because they saw the crowds going and they knew they needed to be there for him. Maybe they were even trying to stop the crowds. We don't know. But they, there was this big you know, thing where Jesus wanted to get away and yet these crowds chased him down. And then you know, they're probably thinking, well, we need to be security here or something and try to keep them away from Jesus. But Jesus has compassion on them. He wants to care for them. He wants to do ministry. So now they're in ministry with Jesus. They're there helping, right? They're probably praying with people. They're probably helping get people in, in line and, and, you know, have their next turn and that kind of thing. They're, they're, they're assisting Jesus. They assist him with the feeding of the 5,000. And, and so the, the feeding of the 5,000, that's happening late in the evening. It's dinner time. Um, they have a meal and then they collect the leftovers and now the crowds are still there and they're going like, are they ever going to leave? And then Jesus says, listen, you guys go ahead. I'll dismiss them. So then they get in the boat late in the evening. Maybe it's already even dark at this time. They push off. They, they make some good progress. And you can imagine at first, they're probably feeling like a big sigh of relief, right? They're probably feeling like, oh man, that was wild. I don't know why Jesus didn't come with us, but here we go, we're going out, and then this storm kicks up. And instead of the peaceful boat ride that they were hoping for, they run into this storm, and they're just trying to make it through the storm. And now, in the fourth watch of the night, this ghostly figure comes walking in their direction on the water. And they are terrified, it tells us. It tells us they were terrified to see Jesus walking toward them on the water. And now it says it was the fourth watch of the night. That's between... 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So it's, they've been doing this all night. They, it's, like, it's like they've almost been up 24 hours at this point. They are 
exhausted, and now they're terrified. They think it's a ghost, which maybe we could criticize them for that, but I don't know what else you or I would think in that situation, right? You've, You've just had this exhausting day. Now you're in the middle of a storm in a little boat um, on a lake, and it's the middle of the night after 3 a.m., and this figure comes walking on the water. I think any of us would jump to ghost. I think any of us would jump to, like, this is certainly not good, right? Certainly not a good thing to be seeing a figure walking to you on the water. Now, maybe because we know this story, we might have some other assumption, but I think if we were in their position, we would think the same thing, and we would be terrified like they were. It even tells us that they cried out in fear. They cried out in fear. They, they screamed. They screamed, right? That's what that is. Cry out in fear is a scream. They're terrified, and they scream. And I think that's, it's interesting to see Matthew's transparency here. It's very transparent. He's in the boat at this point. He's part of the, he's one of the disciples. He's there in the boat, and uh, and he could have chosen to leave the screen out of this account, right? He didn't have to say, he could have certainly said, oh, and we were scared. Like, we were pretty scared. You know, not not too scared. We're, we're manly men. No, he tells them, we screamed, man. We cried out in fear. We were afraid here. It's another interesting thing that in, if we compare Matthew's account to Mark's account, he also, he, he adds another detail in here that's very interesting. He says that, he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. So, so Mark notes that as Jesus is walking toward them on the water, he, he's just going to walk past them. right? So the picture Jesus is just you know, walking on the water. You're making, walking kind of toward them. But then, you know, you see someone walking toward you and you realize, oh, no, they're actually going to just walk past me. That's what they're seeing. They're seeing this figure is just going to walk past them. And then he hears them cry out in fear. And that's when he turns to them and he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Right? He tells them, um, take heart. Be, have courage is another translation that's there sometimes. It's, it's I. It's me. Don't be afraid. And I think that's interesting phrasing because Jesus isn't implying, and I think this is an I think this is crucial. He's not implying that there's nothing to fear, right? He's not saying, why would you ever be afraid? He knows that there are very real reasons to be afraid in this world. They shouldn't be afraid because of his presence. He says, take heart because it's me. Don't be afraid because it's me. This is a truth that we should all embrace because there's many things in this world that are worthy of our fear. Right? This world is a dangerous place. Why is it a dangerous place? That's a phrase we say all the time, right? Hey, the world is a dangerous place. Why is it a dangerous place? It's a dangerous place because of sin. If it wasn't because of sin, if it wasn't because people have rebelled against their creator and consequently hurt one another, the world wouldn't be a dangerous place. The world was never meant to be a dangerous place, but it's a dangerous place because of sin. And we know that Jesus has overcome the world. He's defeated Satan, sin, and death. This is something that is commented on in John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus speaking to his disciples says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
But he tells them, listen, I want you to have peace. Jesus wants us to have peace. As his followers, he wants us to experience the peace that we can find in him. But he says, you're going to have tribulation in this world. There are going to be problems. There's going to be bad things that happen to you. But take heart, which is what he said to these disciples here in this moment. Take heart, have courage, because I have overcome the world. The reason that we don't have to have fear, that we don't have to fear, is because he has overcome the world. The psalmist, King David, in Psalm 27, verse 1, says, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Again, here we see David in a similar way. He's not saying that there's never any reason for anybody to be afraid. He's saying, in comparison, and because I know that Yahweh is on my side, because I know God is, is with me, I don't have any reason to be afraid. It's not that there wouldn't be anything to be afraid of if I was alone, but because I have God on my side, I know I don't need to be afraid. And what we see is that our fear can only be assuaged by keeping our eyes on Jesus and recognizing his presence in our lives. And what we'll see is in this next section is, a, is an illustration of this. So we get an immediate illustration of what it looks like to keep our eyes on Jesus in order to overcome fear. This next section we're calling Out of the Boat, verses 28 through 33. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Alright, so Peter. Man, Peter is such an interesting character. He's always the one to speak up first. He's always the one to jump in. He's always ready to go. And, and Peter's fear immediately shifts to awe when he recognizes that the water, the, the water walking form is Jesus. Right? He's He's terrified with everybody else. He's afraid with everybody else. But then he's immediately, like that, that fear immediately just shifts to, oh, it's Jesus. He's walking on the water. Right? He can't believe it. He's awestruck. And he wants to do it. Right? He's the guy. He's the guy, the guy that's going to jump in. He goes, I want to do that. Right? He was just terrified a second ago. But now he sees Jesus. He's an awestruck. And then he immediately jumps to, I want to do that too. He wants to be a part of it. He wants to be doing what Jesus is doing. And he asked Jesus to command him to come out on the water. Right? He says, if it is you. But that's really the, the form of that in the Greek is, is the assumption that it is. It's, it's not really a, a full question. It's really he, him assuming that that is the case. Um, and so he's saying, listen, command me to come out on the water. He believes that Jesus has the power to make him walk on water just like him if he wants to. So Jesus obliges and tells Peter to come out on the water. He says, come. All right. You want me to command you? Then I command you to come to me on the water. And so Peter steps out of the boat and it works. He's walking on the water. 
But then he so, it says he saw the wind. When he saw the wind, when he saw the wind, which is just an interesting phrase because we know we can't see the wind. We can see the effects of the wind and we can feel the wind, which is, I think, probably what happened to Peter, right? He, he sees the wind, the gust of wind comes, it, it, it blows up the, the waves, uh, the waves kick up, and, and he probably feels it on his face and, and through his clothes, and that's when he realizes the danger that he's in. He shouldn't be able to walk on the water, right? This shouldn't be something that is possible. He all of a sudden starts, his rational mind starts kicking in, and the, the excitement and awe that he, that he stepped out of the boat with, that's all of a sudden gone, and now all of a sudden it's, wait, I shouldn't be able to do this. And he's afraid. He's in the middle of the sea at night in a storm, walking on the water. And he's exhausted. He's been up for almost 24 hours. So, um, so he's t- he, gets, he gets scared, scared from seeing the wind. We should note that, that Peter didn't know how to swim. We, we see this, um, if you want proof, in, in John chapter 21, verses 7 through 8, he, uh, he swims 100 yards. I'll let you look that up on your own. John 21, verses 7 through 8. So we know that he could swim, but it's still, it would be a scary situation for the best swimmer, right? The best swimmer in the world in this situation, having been through what Peter had been through that day, having stayed up all night, having thought he saw a ghost, now stepping out of the boat while the storm is still raging and you're miles from shore, he would be scared. He would be scared as he starts to sink and realizes this isn't, a, this isn't good. And what we see in this is that Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus. He looks at his surroundings and he becomes afraid and he starts to sink. He starts to sink as a result of his fear. And his fear and doubt cause him to sink and he cries out, Lord, save me. So even though he's afraid, even though he had had a moment there of doubt where he doubted that this was possible, doubted that it even should be happening, his first instinct is still to cry out for Jesus to rec- rescue him, and Jesus immediately rescues him, right? I think that was the something that, talk about things that jump out at you in a passage when you, when, when you haven't, when you've read it many times before. That was one of the things that jumped out at me this time around, is verse 31 says that after, after Peter cried out, Lord, save me, it says Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him immediately. Jesus immediately, as soon as he said, Lord, save me, Jesus was there. He grabbed him, grabbed him up. Immediately he grabbed him. It wasn't, he didn't make him wait. He didn't make him suffer. He didn't make him thrash around. He didn't tell him, hey, come on, stop doubting and and come back up. No, he immediately reaches out his hand and grabs him. Even though Peter is doubting in that moment, even though he's afraid, Jesus is there for him in that moment. I think that's instructive for us. It's instructive for us to recognize that, that Jesus doesn't consider our doubt disqualifying. Right? He doesn't say, listen, if you're going to doubt me, if you're not going to be 100% on board, then you know what? I'm out. No, Jesus understands that we have doubt. He's willing to rescue us. And even when we're doubting, we can cry out to him. Even when we're not fully confident, even when we're afraid, we can cry out to him and he will be there for us immediately. But he does have a question for him, right? He calls him, oh, you of little faith, which is almost like a term of endearment for Jesus. It's like a little light mocking that he does of the disciples from time to time, where he says to them, oh, you of little doubt, a little faith. And then he says, why did you doubt? And really, this question is a diagnosis, right? He's explaining to Peter the reason that he started to sink. 
is that he doubted. Because he doubted, he started to sink. Jesus wants, to, wants him to understand. That's why you, you started to sink, is because you started to doubt. Peter allowed the wind and the waves to distract him from having faith that Jesus was powerful enough to enable him to walk on water. Yet in spite of Peter's doubt, Jesus still rescues him. What this shows us is that Jesus is faithful even when we are faithless. Paul records a, uh, a early church saying, right? He, he says this, he does this a couple times in his letters where he'll say something like this, like he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, where he says, the saying is trustworthy for. And what he's saying, when he, when he says that, when he says the saying is trustworthy, what Paul means is, I'm going to recite to you a saying that you all know, a saying that you use. He's affirming that it's true, but it's something that they already say. Maybe even it's even like a song or a rhyme of some kind. And he says that this is the saying that, that, that is true. He says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Jesus remains faithful even when we are faithless. He will be faithful to us even when we have doubt. It's okay. Doubt is okay. We can still cry out to him with the little faith that we have, and he will be there for us. I want to wrap up this section by asking, our, asking this question, of what can we learn from Peter's walk on the water? And, and one of the first questions we need to ask is, is this incident descriptive or prescriptive? Is this incident descriptive or prescriptive? And what this, in other words, we might say, um, are these instructions about how to walk on water, uh, which, and, and assuming that all Christians should walk on water, so this is instructions about how to do it, or is this a description of, a, of an event that can teach us something else? And I, I know that in this instance, it might seem like a silly question to ask, right? We might go, well, of course it's not instructions about how to walk on water. But this is something that there are, and while this isn't one of those passages, there are passages in the Bible that Christians read differently. They, some read them as descriptive, as just a, a one-time event. We can learn something from it, but it's describing an event. And then other Christians will look at that same passage and say, no, this is prescriptive. This is telling us what to do and how to do it. And we all should do it. It's something that Christians get into all kinds of debates about. Um, so while this is, in this instance, it might not be, it, it may seem obvious to us that this is descriptive. Sometimes that, that's not always so clear, which we'll see at the end uh, of our passage today. The other thing we might take away from this is that Jesus is the cure to our fear. Right? The disciples are afraid. The disciples are terrified, both of of the, the storm, of the situation that they're in, of even this figure they see walking in the water. But Jesus is the cure. If we focus on him, we will not be afraid. Not because there are no dangers, but because he has overcome the danger. So oftentimes in our culture, 
the messages that we try to give people about why they don't need to be afraid is that we try to kind of downplay the risk, downplay the danger. We say, no, you don't need to be afraid of that. It's safe. It's okay. It's harmless, right? Nothing bad's going to happen. We try to give all these assurances about why it's okay. But oftentimes those are empty. Oftentimes those aren't true. Oftentimes there are very real dangers, very real risks, things that we should be afraid of. But ultimately, Jesus is the cure for that fear. We don't have to deny the danger. We can just acknowledge that our God is bigger than that danger, that Jesus has defeated that danger. And so we don't need to be afraid. We can also see in this that Jesus wants us to join him in what he is doing. Right? Peter's desire to get out of the boat is honored by Jesus. Jesus welcomes Peter to join him on the water. So oftentimes we want Jesus to join us instead of us going to him, right? The, the difference might be this. We can consider like a, a different way that this could have gone, right? What Peter says to Jesus is, command me to come to you on the water, right? He wants Jesus to call him out onto the water to do, to do what Jesus is doing. Something that's unnatural, by the way, something that should be impossible Peter says, I want to do it too. I want to go with you. I want to be with you. Call me out to you. But we can imagine a scenario in which somebody else, or even Peter himself, but maybe another one of the disciples pipes up and says, Jesus, get in the boat. Jesus, get in the boat. What are you doing out there? Get in the boat. Come with us. Come do what we're doing. But Peter is brave enough to say, Jesus, I want to join you in what you're doing. I I don't need to try to recruit you to my boat situation here. I want to do what you're doing instead. We can also see in this that Jesus will rescue us even in our doubt. In his doubt, Peter called out to Jesus, we can do the same, right? Jesus didn't hesitate to pick Peter up from the water. We can also call out to him even in our doubt. And then lastly, we might say that we should we should respond in worship to what Jesus has done. The end of this section is that the disciples all respond by worshiping Jesus and saying, truly you are the son of God. Right? So he gets, when he does finally get in the boat, they worship him for what he has done. They worship him for who he is. We should also respond to Jesus and worship in all situations. There's one takeaway that you might have, have heard before that I didn't say, and that is uh, something along the lines of step out of your comfort zone. Right? That's oftentimes... Uh, I know it's a lesson that I've heard when people have taught this passage. Um, and I kind of thought, as I was preparing this message, I kind of thought that's maybe where I would go with it. But I don't see it in the text, to be honest with you. And that, that's the, the important thing to me is to teach what is in the text. And I just don't see that in the text. I don't see this idea that getting out of the boat is getting out of your comfort zone. And that Jesus calls us out of our comfort zone. I mean, that, that's, I've heard that taught before using this passage, but I don't see it in this text. I, I don't like to make the Bible say what I want to say. I want to say what the Bible's saying. And I just don't see that in the text, right? That this passage does not seem to be about getting out of your comfort zone. The disciples aren't comfortable in the boat. That's the first problem with that, with that teaching of this passage is the disciples are not comfortable, right? They're exhausted and they're terrified. Right? They've, been, they've had a long day, they're in the boat, they're straining against the wind and the waves, and, and it's in the middle of the night, they see this figure walking around, they're terrified. Like, in what 
world is that comfortable. They're not comfortable whatsoever. They don't feel good until Jesus gets in the boat and the wind stops immediately and then they worship him. That's when they're comfortable is once Jesus gets in the boat and makes everything comfortable. The other thing, that the reason that this just doesn't seem to fit is that Peter doesn't, he gets out of the boat for no purpose other than being with Jesus. And I'm not saying that's not a good reason, right? Jesus, Jesus is outside of the boat. Peter wants to be with him more than anything else. He wants to be with Jesus. And so he wants to get out of the boat and do really the cool thing that Jesus is doing. He wants to walk on the water. But he doesn't get out of the boat for the sake of mission. There's no missional reason that he gets out of the boat. He doesn't get out of the boat and then there's other people out there that he's healing or, or something like that. There's no reason. It's purely a walk. right? There's no reason that he gets out. He doesn't get out of the boat as part of ministry. He doesn't get out of the boat as part of the mission that God has Jesus on or that, that he even calls the disciples to later. There's no missional reason for him to get out of the boat. Jesus gets in the boat with Peter after this little experience, and then they sail off to the next ministry opportunity, which we'll see here next. Gennesaret, verses 34 through 36. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. So, Jesus gets to Gennesaret. It's just a few miles from Capernaum, so he's back near his home base. Remember, Capernaum was Jesus' base of ministry, and so the men recognize him because he's already done some miracles in that region. They probably saw him in Capernaum, maybe saw him other places, and so they recognize, they go, oh, that's Jesus. No, they recognize him, and they immediately start rounding people up. And they're like, oh, he's here, he's here, he's here. We've, we've seen him in other towns, we know who he is. He, he's the guy that can fix. Get, get everybody who's sick, get him out here. Right? Get, go get all the people that are homebound. Drag him out, get, the, get the, the, the cots, get them all out here. Right? They want the, Jesus to do some miracles there. And Jesus' fame had spread, so they know him. And it says that the people begged only to be allowed to touch the fringe of his garment so that they might be healed. Right? They just want to touch the fringe of his garment. And it says that it worked, that as many as touched it were healed. Those who touched the fringe of Jesus' garment were healed. Now, this takes, this takes us back, this idea of touching the fringe of the garment. This passage takes us back to this idea of, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Is this prescriptive or descriptive? And, and this is crucial. This actually is a big complication. The, the answer to this question is, is, has caused people to go to war, has caused people to do crazy things because of this passages like this that they've taken as prescriptive instead of descriptive. Because if it's prescriptive, which I'll tell you right now, it is not prescriptive, but if it's prescriptive, then we ought to seek out ancient relics, items associated with Jesus, because they have healing power. That's not true. But if we took it as prescriptive, then that's what we would do. That would be the right thing for us to do. Because it would be prescriptive. We should want to touch part of his garments. And so 
That's why we see people doing things like looking for uh, people claim to have fragments of the cross or fragments of the manger. Why do they care? Because they think that those things have power. People look at like the, the Shroud of Turin you may have heard of, right? Where they think this was the cloth that, that covered Jesus after he was crucified. They care about that. Why do they care about that, that piece of cloth? Because they think that if it is, if it did touch Jesus, it has some of these magical powers. People go, things like the Holy Grail or other, other types of relics that Jesus may have touched. There's even a church, there's a, a Roman Catholic church in Rome, a basilica. I don't know the difference between all those different types of churches, but it's a basilica. I read it online. They claim to have um, a piece of what they call the holy umbilical cord. I'm not joking. That's a real thing. They claim to have a piece of Jesus's umbilical cord. They call it the holy umbilical cord. And, and people think that it has power because it was part of Jesus, because it touched Jesus. A prescriptive approach to this passage instructs us to seek out articles of clothing or other things associated with Jesus because they have healing power. This has been practiced throughout history with great vigor and passion. Again, people have gone to war for these kind of relics. But if instead it's descriptive, and it is, then we can see that this, is, this touching of the fringe was an act of humble faith. In Jesus, not in the clothing. Right? It's an act of humble faith. The idea that they would touch the fringe of his garment is an act of humility. They're, they're being humble. It's not the garment that heals them. It's Jesus that causes the healing. It's the faith they have in him. The touching of the garment is a symbol of the humble faith that they have in him. We see this expressly stated in Matthew chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. It says, Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. There it is again. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. He tells her in, here in verse 22, he doesn't say, hey, because you touched my garment, you're well. He says, your faith has made you well. It's faith in Jesus, not in the clothing. It's faith in Jesus that heals, not the clothing. So touching the fringe is a sign of humility. They're acknowledging that he is holy and they are not worthy to approach him. They're not worthy to stand before him. They need to kneel before him and touch the fringe of his garment, the bottom. That would be like the, the, the very bottom that be near his feet. They're touching the fringe of his garment. And it's humble faith that is honored. That's what we should take away from this account is that humble Faith is honored by Jesus. Not that touching the garment is what healed them. We'll wrap up with this. Three takeaways for today's passage. Number one, find courage in the face of fear by leaning on Jesus. I recognize that fear is often valid. If we didn't have Jesus, it would be 100% valid. We would be afraid of things like Satan because he is real. Demonic forces are real. Those are real things to be afraid of. Satan, sin, both our own sin that causes us guilt, but also sin that could be directed at us and hurt us individually. And sometimes 
in in not just not just like in a hurt our feelings kind of way it can actually physically hurt us right if we get mugged or robbed or murdered or or something like that like that's our physical body that's hurting us that's sin that's hurting us and death ultimately that's the big thing that we're afraid of when people are afraid they're they're almost always afraid that this could lead to my death right when people are afraid of heights it's because they're afraid of, if i fall off those heights i could die right if i go to that bad neighborhood i could get mugged and if i get mugged i could get i could die right those are the kind of fears that we have those are the things that Satan came, that Jesus came and defeated. He defeated Satan's sin and death on the cross. Number two, join in what, join Jesus in what He is doing, rather than trying to make Him do what you want. That I think is the biggest uh, we can see in in, Jesus, in Peter getting out of the boat. Not that he got out of his comfort zone, but that he wanted to go join Jesus in what he was doing, rather than trying to make Jesus do what they were doing. He was already uncomfortable. He was going to be uncomfortable either way. The boat was no fun. The boat was not going well. But st- and stepping out was uh, onto the water was scary, but neither was going well. So he said, I, I want to be with Jesus. I want to do what Jesus is doing. So often we want to call Jesus to do what we're doing. But we should join him instead. And number three, come to Jesus with humble faith. Come to him with humble faith. Recognize that he is the king. He's our creator. He's our savior. He is so far above us. He is ultimately holy like no other. And so we need to come to him with a humble faith. Would you pray with me now? Father, we do want to come before you in humility. We want to acknowledge who you are, that you are the creator of the universe, that you are the holy king who's worthy of, of all of our submission, all of our honor, all of our praise. And you are our Savior. In spite of our rebellion, you came and died for us and rose again that we might have eternal life and we be accepted into your kingdom because you have made us acceptable. So God, we want to join you in what you're doing. We want to be a part of what you're doing. We want to follow you in all things. Show us what you might have for us to do. In your name we pray. Amen.